live from Utrecht. This is Bitcoin. Explained. Hey, Sjors. Hello. Hey, Sam. Hello. We have another guest, Sjors. Hello, Sam. Welcome. Thank you. Wouters, who are you? I'm a Bitcoin research analyst at River Financial. All right. What is River Financial? It's a US-based Bitcoin-focused company. Offers brokerage, offers like zero-fee DCA, so no fees on recurring orders, and offers hosted mining services. And increasingly, we're starting to do more with the Lightning Network. We first integrated it in 2019, and now we're offering a new product around it as well, around Lightning. All right. Well, what are you doing here? Why are you in Shor's living room with us now? Well, it's an honor to be here, I'd say. Yeah, recently released a report around our learnings from the Lightning Network, the insights that we gathered from running some of the highest capacity nodes in the network. And uh, basically you reached out to me and you were like, well, it would be interesting to have a podcast about this. We talked briefly at Bitcoin Amsterdam about it, awesome conference. And uh, yeah, we'd love to share more. All right. George, what do you think? Sam's here now. Do you want to do it? Sounds good. M might as well <clears throat> discuss the report. Yep. First of all, though, sure, we did an episode about the Lightning LMD bug from, well, so that was the last episode two weeks ago, and I think there is an update about that. Yes. But, so to start off, we kind of speculated in the episode itself what the exact cause was, and we mentioned that we weren't 100% sure. But we were 100% correct. We were not correct? No, we nailed it. Did you sure? Did you nail it? <laughs> Well, roughly. Right. No, anyway, we, we speculated on a few different possibilities. But yeah, it turns out that especially we were talking about what happens when you're not actually using BTCD as a full node. You're, you're just using Bitcoin Core as a full node, yet your Lightning node still stops. And you're using LND as a Lightning node. And the reason that happens is because LND uses parts of BTCD. Because BTCD is not just a node, it's also a library of components that you can use. Mm -hmm. And so if you're using one of those components... Even though you're not using BTCD as your node, you still rely on how those components check certain rules about blocks that they should probably not check, or at least should check correctly if they do. So those components broke. Right. So it's basically because LND was using code from BTCD. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's clear enough. And But there's been another bug this week. Yes. LND notes crashed again. Is that right? Yes. As the song by Britney Spears goes, oops, I did it again. The same person crafted another special transaction, put it in a Bitcoin block, and voila, all the LND notes crashed. Now, in this case, there are a few differences. I mean, in general, it was the same kind of bug. It was like a, a Bitcoin transaction that was perfectly valid, though a bit weird, and in such a way that Bitcoin core nodes would be perfectly happy with it, but Alan, the BTCD-based nodes or libraries that use BTCD code would not be happy with it and would stop, basically. Right. Well, la so last time the reason was that there was a limit on the witness side of SegWit transactions, and then the Taproot transactions don't have that limit, but for the blocks that, that come in... Yeah, and People this should time, listen to the last episode, but I'm getting to the point where my question is, so was it exactly the same? Wasn't the bug fixed? That's, yeah, that, that's that specific bug was fixed, okay. but it was another like difference in interpretation out there, which had to do with another limit that was slightly different in LND. I see. So it or was MBTC. a very similar bug, but not the yeah, same bug? The same kind of bug, but it was a different one. Okay, but the last 
time LD notes crashed, it was an accident, I think, right? It that, or could have been an accident. We don't know. Mm -hmm. The second time was definitely not an accident. This and time was not an accident. So no, this time, this developer, and I think his name was Burak, if I'm remembering that correctly. And I, I actually, I'm, I'm sure I remember that correctly because you told me five minutes ago. And my, my memory isn't that bad. He did it presumably by accident last time. So did, this time he did it intentionally. He, he was looking for bugs and he exploited that. Well, the it, transaction has a message in the opportune that says something along the lines of, haha, you should be using C Lightning. So it was, you know, very clearly an attempt to, to cause a problem there, which is not very nice, but it can happen. Right. Some have you guys have had any problem with this? It, did this affect you at all? At uh, well, we run multiple nodes and I believe the developers were immediately on top of it. And I think like upgraded the nodes, made sure that there were no issues. And I believe there was no downtime on the API that we have either. So altogether it was, it went pretty smooth. So fortunately not too many issues, but could have been worse for sure. Okay, yeah, that, so that sounds lucky because it would have it, it did stop a lot of nodes. Yeah, so hang on though, but so this bug was also fixed by now within a couple of hours. It sounds like I yep. believe it was pretty quick. Yeah, and then be, it was basically fixed before it affected you. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. So, but that does obviously mean you need to pay attention. Yes. And, yeah, right. for sure. Yeah. Okay, I think that's also the type of stuff we're going to discuss in this episode. Yeah, and I, mean, I guess the failure could depend on exactly the details of your setup, which I don't think you know in that much detail. But like, I think it would stop processing new blocks, but it might still, like if the channels are still there, those can channels might keep working. So that's maybe why it didn't go down, something like that. There's a couple of other details about this exploit that might be worth mentioning before we move on. Okay. Um, one of them is that this transaction was a so-called non-standard transaction. And that means that it is a weird transaction that is valid, but nodes will not relay it by default. So if you see this transaction in your mempool, you will not send it to your neighbors, which begs the question of how did this transaction ever find a miner? And this mechanism is mostly a safety mechanism to prevent you from accidentally throwing away your money. Not only how does it find a miner, but even why would a miner itself include it then, right? Yeah, because minor software would, again, generally not include those things because yeah. it has to do with some safety mechanisms for softworks that if you don't include non-standard transactions, that's a double negative, but if you don't include non-standard transactions, then you will probably not get screwed at the next softwork if the rules change. That's the way it, we've talked about that in some other episodes. We'll skip that now. But the basically, so the way he got it in there was just emailing this pool and just asking them to please include it. And it included a nice uh, $750 transaction fee. So Interesting. Now, it was, a tw it was a very, very large transaction. I think it was half a megabyte. So this was 26 Satoshi per byte, which is a high fee, but not an absurd fee rate. But the total fee was pretty high. So yeah, that's how it got included. And once it's in a block, nodes will, will simply uh, accept it. All right. I don't want to dwell on the topic, but I, I guess now my curiosity has been sparked like what what's the incentive for burak to even do this I, I i mean i know there is this sort of controversy about lmd maybe being too dominant on the network is that why i don't know that, there, there to... could be I th my guess would be without having spent too much time it's like there's two ways you can deal with security issues when you when you see a product that you think is not secure you can contact the developers of that product and and disclose carefully what the bugs are and be very, very patient. So it could take months for them to address it. 
or you can go out and simply break their product in public and create sort of a warning signal to the general public. Now, that, that last thing could be warranted under some really extreme circumstances, but I think this was too early for that. But it may have been something like that, like telling the world, like, hey, be careful, you know, lightning is not as mature as you think it is. Things can still break. I don't think it's the right way to do it. So responsible disclosure would require you to do these things, um, contact developers directly, be very, very patient about stuff. And then even if you did want to do a public demonstration of the vulnerability, I would say do it on testnet so that, you know, you can show that you have this thing that can crash nodes, but it only crashes test nodes and not real nodes. Okay. I'm going to move over, move on to the report very soon. But first of all, because I don't think this is in the report, but now that I mention it, some, do you have any insights about which types of nodes are used on the Lightning Network at all? Like, is it most, it is mostly L&D, for example, right? I think largely, yeah. It's a, it's a very popular one, indeed. Yeah, but you don't have any... No, I don't I, have any statistics. There wouldn't even be any statistics. Exactly, yeah. I, I guess, I would assume. You, well, I, my guess is you could figure it out, but I've looked at the mempool.space. They have a new Lightning Explorer, and they don't show the node type. So I guess you'd have to pay attention to some subtle behaviors to, to guess whether somebody has a Lightning, a C Lightning node or an LND node or an Eclair node. Yeah. Okay. But so. most of, I do know that most of the mobile wallets are based on LND. Yes. And that's probably the majority of nodes, but not maybe not the majority of visible nodes. Anyway. Anyways. Okay. Moving on. Some. Your report, it's called Insights from the Fourth Largest Lightning Network Node. Yes. And I think you briefly mentioned it already, but let's start again by why did you write this report? Why, why does this report exist? Yeah. Um, what is it and why does it exist? Yeah. So the report's focus is to share data and essentially, as the title says, share insights about what we've learned from the Lightning Network. and. When we initially had a look at sort of where things were at when I joined the company earlier this year, Lightning was starting to pick up quite significantly in, in terms of activity, as we could see in the data. I just saw the, the, we have a team of four Lightning developers and I just saw them sharing things in Slack and being enthusiastic about the progress. And I figured like, I haven't really seen anything like this out there too much. So we started discussing like, hey, could we, you know, like share some of these insights with people? And there are people who have been sharing data, which is great but not much from larger nodes or, or bigger companies, anything like that. So we figured, what if we make a report and share what we think might, people might be interested in as a first pass, sort of, to see what is the interest from the industry, what is the interest from the market, where do they think it might be interesting to learn more about Lightning and the way we operate it or the way they could operate it and then potentially repeat the report in the future with some learnings, with more insights. But the focus was very much on data sharing because it's very difficult for, I believe anyway, for people to work on this kind of system and to improve it if they don't really have a lot of statistics about like, you know, why payments are failing to give an obvious of how users are actually experiencing the Lightning Network. You have to do a lot of in-person conversations with people, I guess, a lot of qualitative research. And that's quite time intensive if you're a developer who wants to, you know, build systems. You're not a necessarily a quantitative a qualitative market researcher and you might be running a non-custodial service where you're not spying on your customers enough to see what problems they're running into or you might be you know building a node and you don't even have a help desk yeah so yeah yeah definitely so we were trying to figure out like what would be the best format to share this the report is relatively brief i believe it's about 20 pages and lots of images and graphs in there 
to just make it accessible to people, also to River clients who might not all have necessarily used the Lightning Network before or really learned much about it. So it also keeps them in mind a little bit, makes it accessible for non-technical people. And yeah, the, the focus was sharing data. And what we're now already seeing is that other people are sort of jumping in, starting to share their insights too, based on some of the metrics that we shared. And it's starting to get a conversation going, which is really what we were hoping to see there. And hopefully this can help developers who want to improve Lightning to gather more data and insights so that they improve Lightning and essentially everyone benefits because it's definitely in our interest to see Lightning succeed. And we're trying to do what we can to help there. And to be very clear, what, what you did specifically, it did, this is the data from your own node. You didn't collect data from other nodes or users. This is just, you guys have one of the biggest nodes and this is your experience. Yeah, That's we, what it is, right? Yeah, we actually have two nodes in the top 10 by capacity. So how much Bitcoin's on there? But initially the second one was in the process of being built up. So it wasn't up there yet. But by the end, when I was done with the report, we also had number five or six, I believe, by capacity. The data is all from there. I would love to, in the future, start aggregating data for more providers. And I've seen some comments on Twitter of people being like, yeah, but this is just what operators are saying. How can we trust that? And it's like, well, you could, you know, you could lie about how many transactions you're processing you can make all kinds of things up to make it look bigger than it is. But eventually it's going to catch up with you. If you pretend to do like 10 times the number of transactions that you're currently doing and everyone else shares their data and nobody gets close to what you're doing, then it looks kind of dicey. So mostly I believe at the current stage of lightning, people are very invested in seeing it succeed in the long run. So like you don't necessarily have to trust everything and you can put like 17 asterisks in the report saying like this is all like self-reported data from all of these users but across this many users these are the insights that we can gather okay so the way we're gonna handle reports we're not we're not gonna deal with it page by page we're gonna select some subtopics that we found of particular interest maybe in context of a more technical podcast so let's start with the most important question. How much money are you making? <laughs> well, me personally. <laughs> no, no, no I'm not asking about your salary. I'm asking about the fees. I know it, it was a joke. Yeah, no. The, so the, the focus of the company isn't to make as much money as possible on Lightning. The focus is to help grow it. So currently the returns are about 1.15% per year. And in the report itself, I also compared this to some other users that have sort of shared their data. Some of them earn like five to 10% per year, which is already a pretty significant number, but there's likely some kind of plateau in there where if you add more capacity to your node, you're not going to be able to reach those numbers because there's not enough activity on the network for you to get those kind of returns with that much Bitcoin. So there's a, that's a little asterisk there. So for river it's 1.15% at the moment, but the focus is much more on reliability of the, of the lightning integration that we have. Right. Yeah, I think one of the things you pointed out in the report was to say like companies can optimize for very different things. So they could optimize for revenue, but if they have clients, they may want to, and they make money from those clients in very different ways. They want to make sure that the clients just have the best experience when they use Lightning, even if that's not profitable at all. So, and that also, I guess, in the marketplace means that you're competing with people who do not optimize for profit. So that means that fees might stay quite low, but we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah, definitely. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. 
how many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what, Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. What is the most work, so to say, in operating a node? Is it managing liquidity? That would be my guess. Is that that's sort of where most of the effort goes into? Is that right or no? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Like as a node operator, I mentioned we have a team of four developers. They're not spending all day closing and opening channels and managing liquidity. That would be very extensive. They're very focused on building out the infrastructure that will also be offering that we are offering to other companies. So that's where the majority of the work goes and managing liquidity as you mentioned and opening and closing channels that does take up some time especially if you want to have successful routes if you want high reliability so there's a bit of vetting involved there in sort of the nodes that you want to connect to because if you just connect to a random hobbyist that will send one transaction per month doesn't really have much liquidity doesn't really put any effort into it it's kind of difficult as a company to justify that because you're locking up capital in a very inefficient place with no track record so there's a little bit of vetting. It's not very strict. And our CEO has also mentioned on Twitter, like we're looking into ways to make this a bit more flexible because there, so there is a white list at the moment. And only if you're on there, you can open and close channels, but it ensures that there's a high reliability for transactions to get routed. And that's ultimately what we want to focus on to get it reliable enough for companies to want to consider accepting lightning as a payment, for example. So how does the vetting work? What are the factors you you weigh when it comes to fetting yeah for example some of the things i mentioned like how long has this node been there like is there some kind of track record how many connections do they have how much bitcoin capacity do they have essentially is there some kind of minimum for the channel size it's not very large but it's not like you're opening and closing channels for just a few dollars because there are already like so many of those out there so i think those are some of the main reasons main things and i'm sure like the so how, how does this actually work is this is there someone sitting there looking at these things or is it automated I, and by the way i will notice right now so we, we had a discussion yesterday before we did the podcast where i mentioned insurance as well but for me it's definitely true i haven't been keeping up with lightning very closely at all for the past couple of years like i see I, i'm somehow way more interested in bitcoin base chain always have been so it's very possible that i'm asking very beginner questions just so the listeners know and you know 
I, yeah. I don't so, pay super much attention to Lightning, but I do run my own node. But I don't pay much attention to the node either. Like I, I will open new channels if I make a payment and it doesn't go through. That's sort of a reminder to me, like, oh, okay, I should probably open a channel there. Or if people complain that they can't buy my book. But other than that, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah, the question was, is there actually someone sitting there looking at these things? So, or so, is this some automated process? Yeah, no, it is a human process, very much so, because there's just like too many things to consider, etc. It's too early stage. In the future, I could potentially see it automated, but that goes for, for many of the processes they're currently manually doing. It's it's just a matter of time before a lot of that will get automated and needs to be automated because if you know if companies want to run Lightning, it's kind of unlikely that they'll want to have a full-time employee just sitting there managing channels and liquidity. It's just not realistic in many cases. So for, for, for your note there, like on Lightning Knowledge, like I'm also not a developer, I'm not a technical person. So I do spend time looking at Lightning because similar to Bitcoin, like it, it gives off a lot of energy, like Bitcoin in the early days, it gives off a lot of energy. There's a lot of people excited about it. It's really interesting to learn more about. So I try to keep up to date, but I'm definitely no expert either. So if there, if, if it's currently such a manual process to manage liquidity, for example, does that mean in effect that the net, how centralized is the network now? Is it really dominated by a few big players like River that actually have someone doing this because they can afford to do it? Well, if you, if you take a look at some of these node operators that are sharing their data on Twitter publicly, I believe Goldsats is a quite well-known one who just shares all of his strategies, all of his approaches. There's quite a lot of other lightning enthusiasts like it who just share how they do things. And for them, since they're earning higher returns, they can also potentially actually be an income stream. But generally they mention like it's a couple hours per week work for, for his approach, for example, that gives a bit of a, an idea for people, like how much work is this actually? But this is of course, someone who is very experienced, really knows what they're doing. If you're not that kind of person, there's probably quite a learning curve. It will take you a while to get to that point. So then it's a significant time investment, which yeah, of course, changes the entire picture for people. But is, to your question, like, is it centralized at the moment? From everything I've seen, like all the data I've looked into, and there was also a really nice visualization that I added to the report from Twitter user called PyMoment, which was a visualization of the Lightning Network. And you could see how essentially there's dozens and dozens of different routes that any given transaction could take, like through sort of the major nodes out there. And there will be many sub routes that will be longer, that might be less reliable, etc. So in that regard, for the current size of the Lightning Network, I would say it looks pretty dang decentralized. It could be far more decentralized, of course, but to sort of bootstrap the network from the ground up, it makes sense to have a very reliable experience for people so that they can enjoy the benefits of the network. And then as it grows bigger and bigger, I'm sure people will also become more vocal about centralization and that type of thing. Right. And I guess the other cost in managing liquidity, so we've just discuss the human cost. The other cost would be on-chain fees, I guess, because you have to open and close channels. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. And I think but right now, surely that's very low. Yeah. But that, so that could change into the future. What What are the expectations there? Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, nobody knows how expensive it's going to get in in what kind of time frame. Yeah, he sure, does. So how how expensive is going to get? I don't know. Years from now, less than twenty one million Bitcoin. Sure, per so disappointing. Okay, we have an estimate. Yeah. Sorry, no, Sam, go on. No, no problem. Think like what it might be a, an issue for in the future if you want to get more people who set up routing nodes where they actually earn returns. That's like that requires some technical skill. It requires a lot of trial and error and setting up 
channels trying to find optimal routes where you can actually make some money. So if you have to open and close a lot of channels to get to the optimal setup, but transaction fees are quite high, then you could have sort of a upfront cost that you would need to pay to actually get to that success point. But in a way, I, I mentioned this in a report as well, it's not that dissimilar from someone who wants to build up a successful YouTube channel, for example. You need to invest in some equipment, you need to really put in a lot of time and effort to make really good videos. And by doing that, like you, you invest a little bit in it, but it can then give you returns. So I actually see it quite similar to that, where the best content creators, they, you know, they don't talk into their iPhone, they have a proper microphone and some good lighting, etc. And that just makes a massive difference. So I, I see this play out in the future quite similar for Lightning. However, that argument goes only so far. You know, if transaction fees become hundreds of dollars, then it becomes pretty expensive to become a successful routing operator, a node operator. Well, it goes both ways, right? If transaction fees on chain are $100, well, that implies that everybody who tries to use, who tries to use Bitcoin has to pay that $100. So that means a lot more people will try to use Lightning and they'll be happy to pay $20 lightning routing fees. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But it, what it changes essentially is that the upfront cost to become a successful routing node, that would rise, that would become potentially less accessible to someone who doesn't have a bit of a budget to invest in this. Possibly, so that's the yeah. only thing. But is that, a, is that a big threat to the decentralization of the network? But, but I'm not like even sure about not. that, right? Because it's all about the money, the returns you're making on the capital that you're investing. So if you're putting up $1,000 and you start making $300 a year, then it's actually better than it is now. So yep. maybe those high fees just mean that you get more return on your investment and you don't have to be a big operator. You could be a small operator. Yeah, so. there's definitely many facets to it, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You mentioned, and again, well, maybe I should stop mentioning this myself. I was just going to say this might be a very beginning question again. But you said, so there's particular routes you could be on that would make more money than other routes. Would the way to figure that out be just trial and, er trial and er error, sorry, trial and error, just try it out and see what works? Or is there, are there other ways to sort of figure it out beforehand? From my understanding so far, that's how a lot of people do it. So when I mentioned earlier that we're trying to share a lot of interesting data that people might be interested in, the number one request is obviously from people like, what are your most profitable routes? But the tricky thing there when you share that publicly is you get all these people who copy the exact same setups. And by doing that, the profit for everyone declines and ultimately everyone's disappointed because some people feel like, oh, you lied about this because I'm not making any money. And it's like, well, you know, like a hundred people just did the exact same thing. Of course, it's not going to be great. That's arbitrary. So I guess to make a concrete example, let's say Starbucks starts accepting lightning payments and nobody has a channel to Starbucks, but you do, then everybody wants to pay Starbucks goes through you. And so you can just charge like 2% on every transaction. No, you wouldn't do that, but you could. And then as people find out, oh my God, that's so profitable. I'm going to open a channel to Starbucks too. Then of course, those fees will go down in competition. But the other problem is they ha also need to have inbound liquidity because you are part of a route. So you are the last destination before Starbucks, but somebody has to get to you first. So if nobody has a channel to you, then even though you have a giant channel to Starbucks, nobody's going to use it because they can't get to you first. So it's, it's tricky on both sides, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so this this segment of the podcast was about fees and liquidity, and also the, because that's the segment of the report, of course. Is this what we wanted to discuss about this, or, Josh, do you have any questions about fees or about liquidity? 
Some did we forget to mention anything? If not, we'll move on. Okay, so the next point is why lightning payments can fail. So some, why can lightning payments fail? What did you find? Yeah, what's nice about being a larger node in the network and having a good bit of connections is that you start to get to volumes where you can say something statistically meaningful about these failures. Whereas if you're, you know, a hobbyist, you've routed maybe a hundred transactions in a month. It's a bit difficult to draw conclusions. Wait, so how from. many transactions do you route per month? So, so in September, I believe off the top of my head, it was 115,000. And so then you can start to say something meaningful about it. Yeah, that's a huge number. So that might be useful to clarify. <clears throat> You're primarily a routing node, as in people connect to you and from like payments go through you, but you're not necessarily, you You are sometimes, but you're usually not the origin and destination of those payments. Yep. So it's really a perspective of somebody sitting in the middle. How often does that work or how often does that fail? Which yep. is different from the end user point of view, right? The recipient for, for, so to remind people, if you're making a payment on Lightning, you are the one deciding the route generally. So that means you have an idea of what the Lightning Network looks like and what the capacity of all these channels is, and you construct a whole bunch of routes and you try all of them until it works. And and that means you know that it failed or not. If you're receiving coins on Lightning, you're just telling people, please send the money to me. And then either you get something or you don't get something. There's some in-between phases where I think you get something, but then it still doesn't finalize. But you have a lot less information. And when you are a route, then you don't know where the payment is coming from and you don't know where the payment is going because it's all onion routed. So you can only see the next hop and where the, the previous hopper had came from. And so all you know is that some payment tried to get through and that's it, but you don't know any context there. But you can still do statistics on that. And that's, I think, what your report is mostly focused on. Yeah, and then exactly. Having 100,000 plus payments per month is a lot, I think. And then a very low failure rate, though. Though yep. I think the failure rate doesn't necessarily explain, it doesn't necessarily completely include what the end user is experiencing because you might, you know, some payments might not even go through you and so they might fail or maybe the payment is split up in multiple parts and the part that goes through you is fine and the part that goes through somebody else is not fine. So Yeah, and that, to, to maybe give some context on the numbers there. So I mentioned 150,000 transactions that was in September. I believe October, like I haven't looked at the data yet, but for September, so 115,000, the success rate was 98.7%, I believe. And I did check a couple months back as well to see if this wasn't a fluke, of course. And the numbers were typically around that. I believe at one point they were 99, at one point 88, sorry, 98.5. So they've sort of been hovering around there for the past few months. Out of that essentially so 1.3 percent of the payments yeah. that failed. does this mean are you bragging now is this thanks no. to river doing good work or do you think this is sort of general so i've checked with some people to like just out of curiosity like do you see these numbers as well some other people have it a bit lower but like they also don't have a sort of a wide list of of channels that they connect to and some people will mention like yeah if you're you know if you're connecting to all kinds of random nodes then obviously that success rate will drop so it's also not bragging in the sense that like we're, we're happy with it, like there, there's progress, but the ultimate goal is just to get to 100% or as close as 100% as possible. Because if we want people globally to use this in a reliable way and use it for business, then you just need to be extremely reliable. And 
Yeah. 98.7% is great, but if one in a hundred payments doesn't make it, some people have the patience for that. Well, it that depends on really on the details, right? Because it sounds really bad. Like if, if that was the case for normal credit card payments, that would be a complete disaster. But because Lightning wallets make multiple attempts to finish a payment, the 98% success rate might be perfectly fine because it'll one second later try some other route and it'll go through. So maybe it's perfectly fine, this number. I, I, I find it hard to qualify. To, to assess that, maybe some lightning expert will tell. It probably depends on the kind of failure. So I think there are enlightening failures where it immediately tells the wallet that's trying to send, hey, I'm sorry, your payment failed, try again. There's another one where it's like, oh, sorry, your money is stuck in limbo for the next three weeks. That, those are the nightmare failures. But I think those, I don't know if you can measure those separately, but I think what, what you're showing in your chart is one is a timeout. Yep. So that... I, I, I don't know, maybe the listeners can help us explain what, what exactly the thing is that times out. The only thing I could find was uh, multipath payments. Apparently when you have multipath payments, so your wallet sends... Well, hang, hang on, yeah. sure, sure. We just mentioned there's a high success rate, but it's not a 100%. And then the failed payments can be divided into several categories, yep. right? So what are the several... The, categories yeah the the two biggest ones so shorts just mentioned one it's a timeout and from from my understanding the timeout means that after about a minute which is the standard time that has been built in after about a minute of trying to find a route like trying to send this onwards it just can't seem to figure anything out that definitively gets it to the final point it needs to be and then the second uh, option that might actually be the second biggest that i just mentioned the timeout the biggest might be that there's no route it's one of the two. They're both about half a percent-ish or so. So there's just no route available. It's check the options and it isn't there, even though there was supposedly a way to get to the final destination. And so this latter thing suggests that, for example, you're talking to a mobile wallet. And so the, the next hop in line, I guess, is a mobile wallet. And that mobile wallet is just not there. So the original person making the payment constructed a route, which went from you to the mobile wallet, and then it's gone. Yeah, potentially. Or or could it be multiple hops away too? or the, Because you have, of course, no control over the final destination. Yeah, indeed. And I think as well, the, the other reason that gets mentioned quite a bit is Tor. So people using just like the Tor network has been experiencing, I believe, quite a lot of issues over the past months. I'm not sure how long this has been. So like there can also be issues there where there was supposedly a node in between that was going to be accepting this transaction, like routing it forward. And like if Tor is having issues, then it could be that initially there was a connection established, but it drops for some reason. And uh, that could also cause issues. Yeah. I mean, it seems like for your direct peers, you could try and make sure that you connect to those peers through ClearNet. If you know if you know who they are, then you can call them and say, can you give me your ClearNet IP address? I guess they might give it to you or they might not. But if you don't know who they are, you just then I guess that's part of your criteria, right? Whether you want to connect to an, a node that's on Tor because you might get lots of failures if there's a problem on the network. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's something that's currently looked at as one of the criteria that you asked about earlier, Aaron. So I'm not sure there, and I haven't heard anything about it, so it would actually surprise me, but it is a factor. Is is it a very big factor? It's one of the biggest factors at the moment of the, you know, of the 1.3% that isn't making it. And perhaps for other people, this is significantly higher. So it's definitely worth exploring more, I think, for people that sort of understand where is this issue originating. Yeah, we talked about probing yesterday during the preparation. And I guess probing means that somebody's just scanning the network for for how much money is actually in every channel. So they, they just send a fake payment, essentially, to a final destination. And if the fake payment makes it through, 
then the, the recipient of the fake payment will not accept it because they don't have the pre-image. So it will fail, but it will fail in a different way than when there's not enough money. So the, the attacker or, or scanner, whatever you want to call it, can see how much money is actually in the channels because that's normally kept private. But if that was happening a lot, you would expect a very, very high payment rate, as you pointed out. Yeah. yeah and exactly. you're not seeing that. So that implies there's no probing? There, there's probably some. I would guess. I don't know for sure. There's also, I believe, probably many of the, the chain analytics companies that are trying to figure this kind of stuff out to see if they can sort of reduce the privacy on Lightning and figure out what's going on there. But there, I couldn't see anything in the data that would indicate like this is happening at mass scale and really impacting sort of success rates, etc. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to recap this and I'm not sure if I understand this correctly. So do correct me if I'm wrong. So generally, we have a high success rate of payments, or at least sounds high to me. I don't know what would be considered high, but 99% sounds kind of high to me. And then out of the 1%, so the payments that do fail, you can basically categorize them in two categories. So one is timeout and one is no route available, right? And then there's a very small sliver of other I'm seeing yep. in the report. Do we even need to get, so what's other that you just don't know or what? Uh, other, others could be, there's indeed, there's like a error unspecified, like when there's just some kind of issue. My guess is one of the issues as well, I believe I looked into it, was that someone might send an actual manual payment, but they make some kind of mistake in, in, their, in their payment or in the instructions, et cetera, and it doesn't go through for some reason. Or the node could be uh, offline for just a second or something, a power outage, you name it. LMD uh, bug. Something, yeah, something like this could happen. But that's that's such a small minority that I really believe focusing on the first two will give the biggest results in getting a higher reliability. Okay, so the first two were, or the main two, the two are timeout yeah. and no route available. Yeah. So my first question about no, no route available is why would it even get to you if there's no route available? Did, did you already, have, did, I think did you already means, discuss this or no? Yeah, it, it wasn't super clear to me either, but I think it just means that the next hop isn't available, which could be that you have a, so, so basically night, lightning nodes gossip around things about the network. So they'll say, oh, river is connected to these other five nodes and they have channels that are this big. And so somebody makes a payment based on that information. And then the payment gets to river and rivers like, yeah, I'm trying to reach that, that other guy, but it's, they're not online. Right. So okay. So that could be the mobile wallet, which you just mentioned, for yeah, example. Exactly. Right. Okay. I got that one then. Yeah. And then the other one would be timeout. And you mentioned that's probably Tor related, I think. Could be. That's the biggest suspicion I've heard from people so far. Indeed. Yep. Well, I can definitely confirm because we do our meetup in Amsterdam and a lot of people try to pay with Lightning. And some of the people have set it up themselves with their wallet and then it's going through Tor. And that's probably the number one problem we, we encounter when people try to oh. pay us yeah. through their own sort of setup, which uses Tor and... Uh, well, they, they're, they're probably often. using Tor in both directions. So they're probably using Tor to connect to their home wallet in the first place. And then that wallet itself is connected through Tor to the next hop on the Lightning Network route. So, that, yeah, that can get slow. Yeah, makes sense. Maybe to give a little more context, actually, I was just thinking, like, we've shared the, the number of transactions, the payment success rate. It's also interesting to know, I guess, for people, like, for what kind of size of transactions is that? Because, you know, it's really easy to have an extremely high success rate if people are just sending one cent, so to speak, or one Satoshi worth. But uh, the average transaction size was $46. 
which to me the first thing was like I had to quadruple check if this was correct because it seemed really high for Lightning given the current on-chain fees. Right. But it gets skewed upwards very high by like we have high capacity on the nodes. So obviously larger transactions are a bit more likely to come through us and some of the others in the top capacity nodes. But then I had to look at the median size and that was about $5. So that seems a lot more realistic and sort of around what you might expect given the fact that there will still be large transactions and people just trying things out. So that gives a little bit of an idea, like this is sort of the median transaction size for which that payment success rate is there. And I had a look at some of the earliest data I could find in terms of payment success rates on Lightning from, so as I believe from 2018 or might be 2018, yeah. A $5 transaction failed 50% of the time-ish. So that's quite a, a jump there. Right. And I would assume that the bigger the payments, the bigger the offset will fail. That was the assumption initially as well, but due to the sort of the size that the Lightning Network is at at the moment, we had a look at as well as like how many transactions have we done over a Bitcoin, for example, worth as there are some large channels. But typically when people try these, they're a over bit... Over a Bitcoin, is that what you said? Yeah. Over the Lightning Network? Yeah. Okay. There have been there, uh, I believe we've routed four, one of our developers really? mentioned. Yeah. This was, yeah. But but uh, I'm guessing well, that like, would skew the average. Yeah, upwards, hence, right? hence why. But but actually, yeah, hence why I looked at the median to yeah. uh, exclude those, indeed. But uh, yeah, looking at the stats there, it gave gave some insights in sort of how have things progressed ever since. So that's I think relevant context for people to understand when we talk about these numbers. I mean, keep in mind right, that so if you're sending a Bitcoin to another node, you're probably sending it to some node like through a bunch of channels that are very high highly reliable. You're not sending it to some random mobile yeah. wallet on Tor. So I would imagine that the success rate would be higher for yeah, those that, big transactions. Yeah, that, that's actually the yeah. point I wanted to make, but I kind of lost my uh, train of thought there. But it, indeed, like likely when people are sending such large transactions, they're going to just manually take a look at, you know, could I actually get this through? Is it there or not? So I believe at the current stage, you can't say a lot about it yet. There's probably, you know, reliability might drop a little bit when you start me sort of messing with the threshold of the sort of upper X percentile of the channel sizes. But... Uh, yeah, for the most part, it seems to be pretty reliable. Yeah, and if you want to know a little bit more about routing, you should listen to the episode I did a year ago with René Picard about optimally reliable payment, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, a smart way to split transactions into things. And he looks at, he talks about metrics, like if the channel is, uh, you don't know what the capacity of a channel is, so your best guess might be half basically so you might your best guess might be the half of the money is on one side and the other half of the money is on the other side and you can do some some reasoning from there also we did an episode with Joost Jager uh, that was also about routing right yep. I think okay well so we discussed why lightning payments can fail and I think did, did we discuss everything about that I think so yeah okay next topic this will be the last topic of this podcast Lightning infrastructure for business. Yeah, you mentioned that River is running a Lightning node as a service. So basically, instead of the clients having to run their own Lightning nodes, you run it for them and they just use an API that makes their life easier. And you've discovered some things that are important yeah, when doing uh, that. Right? Yeah. So actually, River has been offering this for a while, but to just one client to try things out, uh, which is El Salvador's Chivo wallet. We like offer the API for them to route any lightning transactions that people want to do through the app through our nodes. And what this essentially does is it makes 
life easier for the developers of this app instead of them having to spend part of their time on keeping nodes online, updating them, making sure they always have enough liquidity, etc. That responsibility is transferred to us, which also means that if Lightning payments fail, people look at us. Like, well, well essentially the clients look at Chivo and they're like, why is it not working? But Chivo looks at us like, hey, you have to make sure this works as often as possible. And thus, why I mentioned earlier, our focus is I, very I much... I want to specify something real quick here. If a Chivo user pays a Chivo user, it doesn't use Lightning, right? That's just custodial. So we're talking about yeah, Lightning. payments from Chivo to some other yeah, Lightning specifically, wallet. Yeah, specifically, yeah. Okay, go on. Exactly. Yeah, so if people want to use the Lightning, like essentially if the clients want to use the Lightning Network, we need it to be as reliable as possible, as I mentioned earlier. That's really why that's the focus. But initially, like build this up with this as a first client and then recently sort of came out about it and shared it with the industry. As initially, a lot of people thought that Strike was doing this, but it actually wasn't the case. Um, but that was sort of the sort of first client Wait, for us. so was River doing it from the start or did yeah. River jump in later? No, from the start. Okay. Yeah. So from there on out, like we learned a lot by doing this and then made this product public where now other people and developers, et cetera, can look into this API. If anyone's interested, the website is rls.dev. So, but you can also find it through the river website. Um, and it's essentially, it's as mentioned, it's an API so that you can route these payments through. And w the first immediate thought that people have like, oh, but that's centralized, like, but then everything goes through rivers nodes or something. That's a problem for the lightning network. But I see this very similar to when you tell a friend about Bitcoin and they're pretty excited about it. They're like, all right, I'll buy a little bit. In many cases, they'll buy a bit and put it on an exchange and keep it there. And that's not really the experience that veteran Bitcoiners like to see, but it at least makes them take that first step so they can then start learning more about self-custody, about sort of evaluate like what is the impact for this on me, on my life, on my financial decisions. And that's a really first, like a, a first important hurdle to overcome. And in a similar way, if companies want to start taking Lightning seriously and uh, accept it as a payment method, et cetera, but they don't necessarily want to have a developer that spends a lot of time on this, then they can use such a service and <clears throat> <clears throat> so if, if a company wants to use the Lightning Network, but doesn't necessarily want to put a full-time developer on this, then this makes it far more accessible for them to get started. And if they then take it very sort of seriously and it's promising numbers, etc., then they can use it to like use that position to then reevaluate. Do we maybe want to run our own infrastructure? So it's the first important step for businesses to want to consider this. Yeah, and something I, I brought up yesterday, I don't know if if the answer to that is known, but you, you mentioned there's four people working on Lightning. Well, there's four developers, but they're maybe doing even more than just Lightning. And You mean you, at River? Yeah, exactly. And that might sound very large, but I have seen companies that run altcoins and they will have a bigger team on their Ethereum node. So by the standards of, you know, compared to running a Bitcoin node and doing on-chain payments, it's definitely more complicated. But is it more complicated than certain altcoins to manage these nodes? I don't know the answer to it. My guess is it's somewhere in between a very, like, very demanding altcoin and, uh, you know, and a much simpler altcoin or something like that. So that's that's another basis of comparison you can have. So it's not that like, you, you will only have River to run the only custodial lightning or the only hosted 
API for a Lightning node. There could be a lot of companies offering that service, so you'd still have, and you can just swap swap out to a different one if you don't yeah, like exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Or do it yourself if you have more than four people available or something like that. Maybe the number is lower. Yeah. yeah. So initially when, when Lightning started growing and, and becoming very, people who were very vocal about it being a scaling solution for Bitcoin, they started sort of started to push exchanges to adopt it without really realizing like how much work is involved in doing this. And typically exchanges, they're big enough to be able to do this. So I'd say definitely keep sort of pushing them to take some action. But for a lot of businesses, if they would like to do this, it, there's a fair bit of work involved. It's not something to overlook. So this just helps it to make it more accessible for them. And then they can essentially play with it themselves, see what demand is like from their customers and get a first good look. Yeah, and uh, sh sharing the resource of liquidity probably helps in general, right? Because you have to lock up quite a bit of liquidity in order to have a good experience. So if you can share that burden with multiple businesses, that might make sense. Yeah. Okay. I would assume in general, if you're going to put in man hours to add something to an exchange, you're running an exchange, you want to add something, it's probably more profitable to just add some shitcoin that people will trade rather than... Yeah, exactly. add lightning because people can already use bitcoin on chain right yeah that, that, that's probably the reason that a lot of exchanges haven't integrated lightning although it is growing now some of some are starting to adopt it yeah definitely and i think that's totally correct what you're saying and for us it's nice because we're just bitcoin focused we don't have to worry about all these other coins and integrations and you name everything so it's really excited to just focus on this and and try to help it grow as much as possible Thank you for uh, coming and explaining all this, this interesting stuff to us. And dear listeners, thank you for listening to Bitcoin. Explained. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. The censorship resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.